Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. Happy Friday, Junior. We begin the readout tonight with a Republican Party that is all in on insurrectionist politics. A cover-up is unfolding before our very eyes with the unprecedented stonewalling that we're seeing from the Republicans' dear leader, Donald Trump. In an attempt to withhold documents from the committee investigating January 6th, Trump's attorneys today defended his far-fetched claims of executive privilege in federal court. But the judge in the case seemed rightfully skeptical. When Trump's lawyer questioned the committee's authority, she asked, are you really saying the president's notes, talking points and records of telephone conversations on January 6th have no bearing on the investigation? These are about who the president was talking to as people were breaking windows and climbing into the Capitol. Meanwhile, we're still awaiting the subpoena that the select committee is expected to issue this week for John Eastman, the architect of Trump's attempted coup. In fact, Chairman Benny Thompson now says that a batch of 20 new subpoenas will soon be issued. And we're also learning that many more witnesses have already cooperated. Vice Chair Liz Cheney confirmed to NBC News that they've interviewed or, or deposed more than 450 people in connection with January 6th. And she emphasized the huge, huge amount of work underway, which she said is leading to real progress. It comes as Republican operatives are organizing a legal defense fund to support Trump's former aides and allies who've been subpoenaed. That's according to Rolling Stone, which reports that veteran Republican operatives Matt and Mercedes Schlapp are leading the effort. However, their fund will not help the hundreds of Trump supporters who've been charged with actually storming the building. So basically, they're raising money to keep witnesses quiet, but they're not throwing a bone to the hundreds of insurrectionists who did the dirty work for Trump in the name of the big lie. Then there's the damning reality that some Trump supporters who participated in the events of January 6th are now being rewarded by Republican voters. As the Huffington Post was first to report, there were at least 10 Republican candidates elected or reelected Tuesday night who attended the so-called Stop the Steal rally that precipitated the erection on January 6th. Among them, three won or retained seats in Virginia's state legislature and seven were one election to local offices across the country. Well, nearly all are on the record claiming they did not breach the Capitol themselves. It's the latest evidence that belief in the big lie is far from disqualifying among today's Republican electorate. In fact, it seems to be becoming a badge of honor. With me now, Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. She was in, she was an impeachment manager earlier this year. And Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DCCC and the DNC. Thank you both for being here. And Congresswoman, I want to start with you to get your reaction to the idea that Republican voters are now electing people who participated in the pre, uh, you know, the pre-siege, quote unquote, stop the steel rally. They're rewarding them with office, uh, both statewide and local. 
It tells you how dangerous it is that uh, the big lie not only took place in the days leading up to the 2020 election, the days after the 2020 election leading up to the insurrection, but the big lie continues. It's very dangerous. It's very harmful to our democracy. That is why I am so proud of the January 6th committee and the work they are doing. I had the chance to talk with Jamie Raskin as we were voting on the floor tonight, knowing I was going to be joining you, Joy, and got my usual daily or weekly update from him on the extraordinary good work of this committee. And what he told me is the quiet story is the number, the tremendous number of people who are cooperating with the committee, who recognize that January the 6th was an insurrection where Americans attacked Americans, where Americans attacked and maimed and killed police officers, Capitol Police officers here. And so the 1-6 committee's work continues. Uh, the, the quieter story is the extraordinary work of the committee and of Americans who are coming forward to tell the truth so that we never have this happen again. You know, and it, I'm going I'm to skip past it for Mike Pence. I want to talk about Mike Pence in a minute, but I want to come back and talk about, you know, norm core, what would be norm core Republicans, Kurt? And, and by the way, if I said 450, I meant mm-hmm. 150 people have been deposed. I just want to make sure that I get that right. It was 150 people have been deposed. Norm core type Republicans even struggle to distance themselves from January 6th. They struggle to not downplay it. Let me play. This is Condoleezza Rice. I'm going to start with Condoleezza Rice when she was on The View talking about the insurrection. Here she is. Mm-hmm. I think what uh, Senator McConnell may be referencing is, yes, it's time to move on in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I'm one who believes that uh, the American people are now concerned about their what we call kitchen table issues. I live in California, not Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And the American people do have other concerns that we ought to be thinking about. Yeah, as if they don't care about democracy in California as well. But here she is now kind of rolling it back. She was at the Aspen Security Forum. Maybe not the audience where you want to be kind of like, just move on from that little insurrection. Here's what she said there. Well, uh, let me be very clear. I didn't mean move on from January 6th. I did mean, however, that we need to think about moving on to a new generation of leaders. Let me tell you what I think about January 6th. I'll just tell you flat out. First of all, um, my worst day since uh, September 11th. Um, I cried watching it. And um, people ought to go testify. I don't think there is an argument for not testifying. I testified before the 9-11 Commission, despite the fact that we could have claimed executive privilege. We did not. So just, uh, you know, she rewinds back to sort of what what one would have expected her to say the first time. Can you talk about this struggle that these sort of previously like national security Republicans are having, wanting to stay Republicans, but having to figure out how to talk about the insurrection? Kurt. I mean, this is the, the, the great litmus test now for the Republican Party, right? I mean, it's no longer about public policy issues, about so-called conservative issues. It's about what you think about the conspiracy theory about Stop the Steal in January 6th. The Republican Party, and this is bigger than Donald Trump at this point, Joy, it's not just about one man anymore. The entire Republican Party apparatus has decided to wrap their arms around domestic terrorists and try to paint them and relabel them as heroes, 
as patriots, as defenders of liberty and freedom. We're going to be hearing a lot of those words over the next year and a half when we talk about January 6th from the Republican Party. And there are people who are going to have to make some very tough decisions. This is not one of those times where you can kind of straddle the line, have one foot in, one foot out. You are either for democracy or you are against it. You either recognize that what happened on January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism or you don't. That's it. There is no gray area here. I think it's going to be incumbent upon the select committee that's been formed to tell that story. I don't think this is something that, as kind of Lisa Rice said earlier, we can just move on from. Let me tell you something. The Republican architects of January 6th, they're hoping we move on. They're hoping we forget. They're hoping that we create distance from it because it will make it all that much easier for them to do it again the next time. What we saw on January 6th, that was a dress rehearsal for what they're going to want to do next time. They are not going to be taking any time off. They're not going to be backing away from it. They have put their entire party apparatus, wrapped their arms around it, and gave it a bear hug. And they continue to do so every single day. And I'll tell you, one of the most consequential things for all the talk about Virginia and the election on Tuesday, do not underestimate the impact of what this committee's work will have. Do not underestimate the impact of what the hearings that they will ultimately have will produce. Because we've seen before how impactful hearings can be when they're done the right way. Heck, just one word for you, Benghazi. Imagine how different 2016 would have been if Benghazi had not been a thing. Well, and I would argue, Congresswoman Dean, I should note that the uh, NBC News is a media partner for Aspen Institute, I should say that. Um, you know, I think both impeachment hearings were actually consequential because I think we learned what the former president was capable of. And we learned what his party was capable of. The fact that they heard that evidence, that searing evidence, especially in that second impeachment, and still let him off, kind of told you who the party is and that what they're willing to accept in exchange for power. I want to play Mike Pence. So Mike Pence is someone who has struggled mightily to kind of reconcile the high and important position he had and the democracy it's supposed to uphold with what he did or didn't do on January 6th. Here he is. He was speaking, uh, I believe, to students. Mike Pence confirmed that Eastman and Trump's plot to confirm the the, the, the the election was unconstitutional. Here's him doing that. On the night of the 5th or the morning of the 6th, someone in the White House convinced you that you that it would destroy your hopes of becoming president if you if you uh, sent, sent it back to the states. My question is, what is the name of the person who told you to buck the President Trump's plan and certify the votes? James Madison. Hey, Congresswoman, he's getting a lot of applause for that answer. But I would note that he had to go and ask a former vice president. He had to ask Dan Quayle what to do on the day. In the moment, he wasn't straightening his back and saying, James Madison. He was saying, can I do this? Your thoughts. Well, a couple of things. Condoleezza Rice, I have great respect for her. But national security is exactly what is at the heart of January the 6th. And, of course, uh, everything thereafter. Mike Pence, my goodness, uh, what a, a nodding uh, vice president he has been. You would have thought uh, January the 6th, when they came in chanting, hang Mike Pence, and hung a noose outside of uh, Congress, that he might have seen the light of day. Apparently he did for a couple of hours, and now he wants us all to just move on from January the 6th. Nothing to see here. It was just a single day in January. But let me tell you something, what both of those folks just seem to miss entirely, and that is we have an obligation here as members of Congress to do two things, 
to govern. Governing is oversight around January the 6th to protect our democracy from such people as Mike Pence who couldn't get clarity in his own mind constitutionally as to what to do in terms of certifying elections. He knew he had a ministerial role, but desperately seeking power and trying to retain it, he wondered if maybe he could hang on and had to call Dan Quayle, phone a friend to figure out whether or not to do the right thing. But after that, look what we're doing here this week. We are governing at the same time as the committee is doing oversight. We are on the precipice of passing two bills, bipartisan infrastructure bill, more than $1 trillion worth of investments in our hard-built infrastructure, and $1.75 trillion in the Build Back Better plan. This is an investment in our children, in our future, in our seniors, prescription drug negotiation and caps, annual caps on expenditures for seniors, and ultimately protection of our planet with more than $555 billion worth of investments in sustainable energy uh, in, in our infrastructure in terms of green infrastructure. We are doing both here. You're watching Democrats, and as much as people like to say, gosh, you're so dysfunctional, what a family. I'd like to say this is what it looks like to govern. We oversee constitutionally what goes on here and hold people accountable. And number two, we make sure that we're building for the future for our children and for this planet. You know, I think that's a fair point, Kurt, that, you know, as messy as the Democrats are, at least they're trying to govern. We're, we're literally watching Democrats fight Democrats over how to do good. While Republicans are absent, and the media, I think, doesn't spend enough time saying, why aren't any Republicans in that room? They were there to get the infrastructure stuff for their own client. They probably have a lot of, you know, people who give them money that have got contracting firms. Maybe they think they'll get something there. But also, it struck me today, Kurt, I'll give you the final word on this. The difference kind of fundamentally is that Democrats look at their base and try to figure out how to please all of these different kinds of people, because the Democratic base is varied. It's very multicultural, multiracial, multireligious. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's, they got to figure out how to make all of those people work together. Republicans say to their base, what do you want? Oh, I'm sorry, you, 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 you're you okay with white nationalism? We can work with that. What else do you want? Oh, you don't like the fact that uh, Donald Trump lost? You want to go ahead and break into the Capitol and do an insurrection? Okay, we'll figure out how to work with that. Um, you want to like maybe not be so anti-neo-Nazism? Not, you want to play with neo-Nazism? Mm -hmm. Let's see, how can we work with that? You know what? We can work with that. Like, it doesn't matter what what their base does. I just want to point you yeah. to Mr. Sean Parnell. He's the front runner to be the Republican nominee for the United States Senate, the great United States Senate in the great state of Pennsylvania. Per the Philly Inquirer, his wife testified that he choked her and hit their children to leave whelps. Um, he has a fiction thriller featuring a gra featuring graphic, graphic violence against women. He has a perfectly good and clear shot at becoming a Republican politician because it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this is the inherent disadvantage, right? Democrats have a broad coalition. They have communities of color. They have working families, middle class families. They are trying to do so much to help so many people. And the Republicans, all they have to do is say no. Let's be very clear here. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema would be completely irrelevant if any Republican in Congress had backbone and listened to what the people actually want and said, we're going to vote for these things. It wouldn't matter what those two senators wanted if people like Mitt Romney came out and said, you know what, I'm with the Democrats on this. Let's get this done. And so the inherent challenge for Democrats is going to be passing something, defining it, making sure the American people understand 
that they are the ones that are helping them. They are the ones interested in getting stuff done to make your life better. I see poll after poll that always says that Republicans are perceived to be better on the economy than Democrats. What a bunch of nonsense. Maybe if you're a billionaire, that's true. But unless you're that, they are not for you. And we have got to do a better job of telling that story. Yeah, and Joy. only one party is in favor of insurrection. I wish we had more time, Congressman. I'm going to invite you back. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I'm going to invite I, you back. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Quickly. It does matter in Pennsylvania. Decency, integrity, character matter in Pennsylvania. So oh, I'd it love matters to come in Pennsylvania. Back. Oh, no, thank you for saying that. I mean, it doesn't matter to Republicans. <laughs> They're fine with electing that. They elected Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, look at all of the people accused of sexual <laughs> harassment and worse. Uh, Congresswoman Madeline Dean, thank you for that final note. It was important to say that. Kurt Bardella, thank you both. Up next on the readout. Tuckums now says he hasn't figured out what critical race theory even is. But he keeps lying about it anyway. And after Virginia stoking racial fear with make-believe CRT is the entire Republican political playbook, period. And Democrats need to figure out how to deal with it. Michael Eric Dyson joins me. Also, what the Ahmed Arbery case and the Kyle Rittenhouse trial tell us about two major problems, how juries and judges are selected in this country. Too bad we don't have a critical theory on the intersection of race and criminal justice to help us understand that. Hmm. Plus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins me on the votes that could be coming very soon, possibly even tonight on President Biden's spending plan. And tonight's absolute worth, an ugly new round of vaccine disinformation now that children are eligible. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We have some breaking news tonight. The U.S. Justice Department is taking aim at voter restrictions, filing a lawsuit today against Texas over certain restrictive voting procedures imposed by Texas Senate Bill 1, which was signed into law in September. The federal lawsuit contends that the law violates the Voting Rights Act. Meanwhile, perhaps you've heard a Republican was elected Tuesday night for vowing to banish African-American author Toni Morrison from Virginia classrooms. A GOP victory that didn't stop Tucker Carlson from fuming over critical race theory, whatever that is. You could say technically, Tucker, it's not being taught in the sense that, you know, volumes have been written on critical race theory and it's not been handed out as a textbook. But its influence and its, its tenets are in those schools. I, I've never figured out what a critical race theory is, to be totally honest, after a year of talking about it. Of course you don't know tacos. Meanwhile, Republicans nationwide are apparently getting high on Virginia Royal, rolling out their latest can't call it racist card in the form of the newly elected black lieutenant governor, former the former national chair of black Americans to reelect Trump. It's the latest version of the rights tried and tired. Look at that black person. You see him standing right there, right? They're black. 
that they deployed when Trump's soon-to-be chief of staff, Mark Meadows, physically displayed a silent black woman to prove that Trump was not a racist back when he was a congressman. And now this AR-15 wheeled in LG will be their new get out of racism free card. While Republicans nationwide make ban all history that shows any white person doing anything wrong to black people ever their 2022 mantra. Join me now. Michael Eric Dyson, distinguished professor of African-American and diaspora studies at Vanderbilt University and the author of the great new book, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. And and first, I want to start before we get to this new gambit that the Republicans are going to lean all the way into on ban any history that makes uh, white people feel uncomfortable. I want to get you to comment on the Justice Department finally leaning in and uh, filing a lawsuit against Texas. What do you think? It's absolutely necessary, Joy. Uh, We have to use the bully pulpit of the Justice Department to do what it's supposed to do. We lost sight of this under William Barr and the Trump administration when they were the exclusive preserve of the private, if you will, firm of the president of the United States of America. Finally, the Justice Department is returning to the work it should be doing, and it should be doing it on behalf of American citizens who are facing uh, unjust restrictions imposed upon them by the arbitrary, capricious decision of state municipal state governments that seek to prevent the flourishing of American democracy. So, Dad Gum, thank you very much for showing up, and may this be a token of what is to come. Yeah, indeed. And let me move on now to this this gambit, because what Republicans are now doing is they basically demand credit any time any of them ever voted for anybody black or if there's a black guy in the Supreme Court that's conservative, any black conservative is supposedly or any, or the black president having ever been elected. Right. The fact that he was elected, period, means there's no racism. And even if they're literally trying to ban books about black people and saying you cannot talk about black, the black experience, we're going to cut that out of schools because white people don't like it. They still want credit. They still want to be able to say it's not racist. And in this case, I just want to get your comment on this, because the two choices <laughs> that voters had in Virginia were a black woman who shares my daughter's name and Jamaican heritage and a black right. and an Afro Latina <laughs> who's part Lebanese. So you had the choice of two brown slash black people and you pick one of them. Do you get credit? <laughs> Do you get special credits like I had ice cream or cake as two options, but I want credit for lowering my calorie count because I picked ice cream. You had two choices and they were both black. Uh, I, your thoughts. <laughs> and, and you I've eaten the cake and the ice cream, clearly. But what's, what's interesting, what's interesting is that you're absolutely right. They want credit for breathing. They want credit <laughs> for having lungs. They want credit for having hair in the morning or getting up and brushing their teeth. Look, I've made an achievement that should be noteworthy. No, you are doing what uh, all political figures must do. Make choices. The problem is here they want they want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea through the running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates uh, the white supremacist practices. We know that we can internalize in our own minds, in our own subconscious, in our own bodies, the very principles that are undoing us. 
us. So to have a black face uh, speaking in behalf of a white supremacist legacy is nothing new. And it is to the chagrin of those of us who study race that the white folk on the other side and the right wingers on the other side don't understand this is politics one on one and this is race, not even one on one. What's beneath one on one? It's the it's the pre-K of race. You should understand the fact that if you tell black people, look, I support a Negro. Look, there is a person of color that I am in favor of. And that person of color happens to undermine and undercut and subvert the very principles about which we are concerned. You do yourself no service by pointing to them as an example of your racial progressivism. So in that sense, they need to have a lesson in critical race theory so that they can understand what critical race theory is. And Joy, we know this. First of all, they, they ain't critical. They ain't run a race in a long time that's meaningful in terms of our people, and they ain't got no theory. Critical race theory, we know, comes from critical theory. The word critical in theory means let's be on the side of those who need to be emancipated for things that are imposed upon them that enslave them. That's all it means, and they've invented an entire world, a universe of meaning out of that one word. So let's talk about de the Democrats for a minute, because here's the thing. As I said the other day, that I think the challenge for Democrats is that they don't—they also lack the vocabulary to— aggressively defend right. black people, even though black Americans give 90 percent and black women give 95, 96 percent of their votes to Democrats. And yet when it comes time to defend black folks, th this guy who came up, who, who's one of the people who came up with this strategy, said that the goal of pretending that critical race theory is this boogeyman is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper that makes them uncomfortable and immediately think critical race theory. And, and that is what right. they've they, they, He said, we've decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with. He just said Americans, but he really means with white Americans. Democrats don't seem to know what to do about this. Can you give? Can well, you, yeah. can, I mean, and I don't care about this, by the way, as a Democrat. I'm just going to be real right now because the Democrats right. can be really irritating. I care about right. it because they're the only party left that cares about democracy. And since they're the democracy party, that's why I'm saying this, not as a Democrat. But go on. What, what do, how could they recon, how could they answer this? Well, absolutely. They got to answer. First of all, Christopher Rufo is doing a kind of rhetorical sleight of hand and blackface. He's affixing, he's taking a black term or a term generated out of African-American and progressive uh, legal theory and using it as uh, the bet noir, uh, the whipping boy and whipping girl of the right wing uh, against the progressives. And they don't even realize that it is a black eye, literally, and a black eye metaphorically. All of it, which is to say this, the Democrats got to understand, as they say in Tennessee, dance with the one that brung you, dance with the one that brung you. And if black people have been loyal to no end, if black people have been supportive of this party, the Democrats have got to find a spine, have got to find a spirit, and have got to find the space to articulate some valuable lessons here. And here's the one thing we should learn from the right wing. Have game have manipulation, have, this is the game we're in. And if this is the game we're in, learn to describe what you're about. Learn to describe what your meaning, learn to describe what your, what your goals are in ways that don't immediately alienate the people that you're trying to support, number one. And number two, that don't play easily into the game of the right wing. Should we have to do that? No. But do we have to? Absolutely right. Do you want the commercial or do you want the product? <laughs> If we want the product, let's be concerned then about how to describe it, package it in a way that will be yeah. appealing to the broadest audience possible. 
and maybe pass the bills that will help your voting base and voting rights. Just saying. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson, it's just advice and you don't have to take it. It's, it's, uh, you know, my, thank you very much, Michael. Really appreciate you, my friend. You so Coming up next on the readout, juries have been seated in the murder trials of Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin and the three men accused of murdering Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia. And in a surprise to exactly no one, both juries are almost entirely white. Critical race theory would be helpful to describe this. More after this. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Roughly six months after Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd, two major cases will show up whether anything actually changed based on that verdict or whether we're doomed to repeat this nation's ugly past over and over and over again, which unfortunately appears to be the case. In Georgia, three white men, father and son Gregory and Travis McMichael and their friend William Rody Bryan are on trial accused of murdering black jogger Ahmed Aubrey. Last year, in a case that many have described as a lynching, Aubrey was chased by the three men, cornered and shot to death while they filmed it. The men are facing a total of nine charges, including murder, aggravated assault and false imprisonment. Yesterday, after two weeks of back and forth, lawyers narrowed the pool of jurors to 12 with four alternatives. Of the 12 seated jurors, 11 are white and just one is black. Now, for context, the county hosting the trial is 27 percent African-American. Defense lawyers were able to remove the majority of potential black jurors, prompting the state prosecutor to accuse the defense of bias and ask the judge to reinstate some of them. The defense struck these jurors, and in this case we're talking about the 11 African-American jurors because of racial bias. Defense lawyers rejected the accusations. We struck 13 white people to this 11, the number of 11 African Americans, and those were based on the same reasons, Your Honor, the same strong-rooted bias. Now, while the judge agreed that there was intentional discrimination, he ultimately declined to reseat the excluded jurors. Quite a few. African-American jurors were excused through preemptory strikes exercised by the defense. But that doesn't mean that the court has the, the authority to reseat. Meanwhile, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a similar, almost completely white jury is hearing the testimony in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, a wannabe militia member from Illinois who traveled to Wisconsin amid protests over the police shooting of Jacob Blake. 
Rittenhouse is accused of murdering two unarmed Black Lives Matter protesters and wounding a third, all of whom, in fact, happen to be white. One of the jurors was removed after making a vile joke about Blake's shooting. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and Georgetown law professor. Yeah, you know, my friend Paul, I, 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 I don't have a, a good feeling <laughs> about this case. But I'm always cynical. I always assume that it's very difficult to, you know, police almost never get convicted. And it, it's very hard to convict, unfortunately, when a black person is the one who is killed um, and they are killed by somebody who is white. I just assume the person is going to get off. Uh, and so I came into this very cynically. But when you look at these, these, the composition of these jurors, in the Ahmed Aubrey case, it's four white men, one black man, 11 white women for 16 total in the jury pool. When it comes to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, it's 11 white men, seven white men, black, one black man, um, and then nine, one, was, one person was, was let go because they made a, a really bad joke. I, it says to me that because groupthink happens on juries— and I've talked enough to lawyers like yourself about what happens when there's only one person of color. I think of the Zimmerman trial where there was one woman of color and she was on the side of conviction, but she was up against these other people, all of whom were white and who were clearly on the side of the shooter. And so what do you, what happens? What do you think? Joy, we know that when a jury is all white or just has one or two people of color, defendants may end up being found not guilty, even if they are guilty. And the verdict will not be seen as legitimate by many. The reality is that race matters. In George Zimmerman's trial for killing Trayvon Martin, five of the six jurors were white. Zimmerman was acquitted. In Derek Chauvin's trial for murdering George Floyd, the jury was racially diverse, four right. black people, two multi-race people. Chauvin was convicted. This is typical. Black jurors are discriminated against, denied their equal protection right under the Constitution. A black people accused of crimes can be tried with no black people on their jury, and that jeopardizes their constitutional right to equal justice under the law. And we can't exclude the fact that voting restrictions also keep you off the jury pool. So if you are barred from being able to register to vote, you also can't get on a jury. So all of these things work together to this is why critical race theory exists, y'all. This is actually what they study under critical race theory in law school, because there are systems in place. And, you know, when I think about these trials, especially the Arbery trial, all I can think about is the Emmett Till trial. All I can think about is the Milam trial, the, the trial of these these two fiends who, who, who lynched a 14 year old boy. And an all-white jury was like, spit spot, this, they're fine, let them go home. That's all I can think about, unfortunately. What about you? And, and now it's 2021, and we're still talking about virtually all-white juries in a case in Georgia involving white men who lynched a black person. The Georgia judge found that 12 African Americans were qualified to sit on that jury. They could be fair and objective. The defense then removed 11 of those 12 black jurors. The defense claimed it's based on how they answered questions, but some white jurors said the same kinds of things they didn't get struck. One white juror said she thought that Mr. Arbery had been racially profiled. Another white juror said she had long conversations with her husband about this case. Another white juror said that she thinks that race matters in criminal justice. All those white folks are still on the jury but the defense used answers like that from black prospective jurors to get rid of them. 
Yeah. And, and I, you know, and listen, we don't want to presume that, you know, white Americans cannot cl- clearly judge this case. I mean, you know, Walter Scott, I'm not sure what the makeup of that jury was. I cleanly did not expect that police officer to be to be convicted. But in the federal trial, he was. And I don't know what the composition of that jury was. So we don't want to presume anything about how anyone will decide. Uh, but the, the it's it's a compounding effect, because in the Rittenhouse case, let's go to the Rittenhouse case. It ain't just the composition of the jury. It's the judge. Um, <laughs> the, the judge, Bruce Schroeder's history. In 1987, he made headlines requiring AIDS tests for sex workers, told he'd uh, be challenged for violating civil liberties. He just said, I hope so. In 2006, Schroeder had such a bad reputation for his outrageous style and stiff sentences that hundreds of defendants requested a different judge, causing a massive backlog in Kenosha County. In, 2000, in 2021, the appeals court overturned him for publicly shaming a 28-year-old woman convicted of retail theft. He made her uh, enter a store. Anytime she entered a store, she said she has to tell management that, you know, she's a thief. This guy is outrageous. He's trying to make himself part of the he's he, he's not like a quiet judge in the background. He's very, very public. And he seems at least at this point to have made rulings that sound like he's like a part of the defense. What do you make of that? Joy, today the judge went off on the media claiming their criticism of the way he's conducting the case is undermining <laughs> public confidence. You know what's <laughs> undermining public confidence? The way the judge is conducting the case. There are legitimate concerns. Remember last week he allowed the three men who Rittenhouse killed to be described as criminals, but at the same time, the prosecutors aren't allowed to call them victims. It's a frightening situation. We're going to be watching this trial, and we're going to call you many, many times. Don't make too many plans, my friend. Appreciate you, Paul Butler. Uh, Coming up next, congressional Democrats are inching closer and closer and closer to finalizing the latest version of their social spending and infrastructure bills. Could we see votes this week? The chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, joins us next. Following this week's election defeats, Democrats are feeling the pressure to produce results and move forward on the president's sweeping agenda. But exactly when that will happen remains up in the air. But a source familiar with the matter tells NBC News that Speaker Pelosi told House Democrats this morning that she was hopeful that votes on both the Build Back Better and infrastructure bills would happen before the end of the week. In an effort to make sure they have the votes necessary when Pelosi brings them to the floor, NBC News has learned that President Biden himself is calling House Democrats to rally support. Yesterday, the House added four weeks of paid family leave back into the social spending bill. Of course, that's something Senator Joe Manchin says he would not support. And even after a months-long process of watching the sausage being made, Manchin says it's all still moving too fast for him. The only thing I would say is the rush to this, and I've said this long before, I truly believe that we need to slow down. I truly believe that we need to wait and see if inflation is transitory, see how much worse it may get. Hopefully it doesn't. Joining me now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thank you, Congresswoman, for being here. I guess my first question should be, have you gotten a call from the president on whether or not a vote will take place? I have not, Joy. I have not gotten it. And frankly, I would really appreciate that he continues to call anybody who's not certain uh, about whether or not they're going to vote for the Build Back Better Act. We are now down to really just a handful of people. And uh, I have every hope um, that we will quickly finish this and we will be able to pass both bills out of the House and send them over to the Senate. And here's the here is the rub. Let's say that you all are able to get to a bill, uh, to a vote, and both bills pass. We already know that the, that, you know, there are enough Republicans to pass the infrastructure bill. Do you have any guarantees 
that there are enough votes to pass the Build Back Better bill in the Senate? Well, look, I mean, we have said for some time that this was a deal that was negotiated by the president himself and Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, and that we would trust the president that he was confident that he could get 51 votes. That's what he told us in the caucus. That's what he's told me, uh, you know, directly. And we believe him. He's going to get 51 votes. Now, I hear uh, what some people are saying on the other side, uh, but I do believe that this is too important to people across this country, to the Democratic Party, to the president, for anyone to vote against this once it goes to the to the Senate. So no, we don't have a full and complete assurance. We are taking a bit of a leap of faith, but we're trusting President Biden, who um, I believe has done a lot of work to assure himself that he's going to get 51 votes in the Senate. Well, here's the here's the question. Do those 51 votes include Joe Manchin? (laughs) Because here is Joe Manchin just uh, today. um, And he's he's talking about the country. And this doesn't sound like a guy who's ready to vote for paid family leave being back in the Build Back Better bill. Take a listen. We can't go too far left. This is not a center left or a left country. We are a center, if anything, as a little center right country. And this means that's being shown. And we ought to be able to recognize that. He sounds like somebody, if you put together the two sound bites that we've played in this segment so far, as somebody who would very much like to push off the Build Back Better bill, keep talking about it, maybe infinitely until it dies. What do you think? Well, that was why we insisted that we had to move both bills together and we had to get to the end of negotiation on the Build Back Better Act. And I do think that Senator Manchin has been negotiating with the White House Uh, in good faith. I I will say that the paid leave provision, he's been very clear for quite some time that he does not support that in the reconciliation bill. We are, of course, uh, very happy that the speaker decided to put it in anyway. Um, But we have to recognize that 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 was something he was quite clear that he didn't support. And it's really frustrating to you know, millions of women uh, and families across this country who desperately need childcare, uh, excuse me, paid leave. We're, you know, one of only six countries that doesn't offer that, the richest country in the world, and we don't offer paid leave. So it is incredibly frustrating. But look, this situation is frustrating because we have very slim margins. We only have 50 votes, and we only have 50 votes because we also have Senator Joe Manchin. If we didn't have Senator Joe Manchin, we would have 49 votes. So uh, I think, and we wouldn't have control of the Senate. So that's the reality of the situation we're in. We worked very hard, and you know, the Progressive Caucus endorsed the president's framework last Thursday, a week ago, um, and because we believe that this is now the best bill that we can get now. We have continued to push for more. And just two days ago, there was a deal announced on pharmaceutical drug pricing, which is not everything we wanted by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a significant movement forward. And it is something that we need to show Big Pharma that we are ready to take them on. So that was a really great addition. Maybe that can happen with paid leave as well. But we are ready now, Joy, to pass these two bills. And at the end of the day, to you know, change the um, the sort of the economic circumstance of families across this country who for whom if they got universal child care. Can you imagine, Choi, what that would mean to women and families across the country who have been pushed out of the workplace during the pandemic and want to go back 
to to work but don't have any childcare or can't afford it, that they would only have to pay 7% of their income on childcare instead of paying, like in my state, $24,000 a year on childcare. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. No, as somebody yeah. who, when I had my third child, you know, even though my husband had a great job, we couldn't afford. And, you know, I, I literally became a freelancer because childcare was so expensive. I couldn't afford $1,200 a month. It just was too much money. But let me let me add one more question, because this argument about paid family leave and childcare, these things that really, as you said, fundamentally would help women, particularly women of color, but with all women, the arguments against them, some of them are just hard economic. I don't like the idea of spending this money like Mansion. Here's one that's ridiculous. Here's Lauren Boebert. I never like playing her, but I'm a player today. Listen, I'm a mother of four. I delivered one of my children in the front seat of my truck because as a mom of four, we got things to do. Ain't nobody got time for two and a half months of maternity leave. We have a world to save here. I hope she hit the brakes at least and put her guns down uh, after popping the baby out apparently in the in her truck. Your thoughts? I, I mean, we're not even crazy. on that. If you just want, yeah, go on. <laughs> okay, okay, I won't even touch that. I mean, look. We are the party of parents. You know, Republicans try to say, oh, we're for parents. How can you be for parents when you don't even want to give parents child care, paid leave, the child yeah. tax? Not a single Republican voted for the American Rescue Let's not forget that, Joy. So let's get these done. Let's protect parents, working families, poor people across this country. They're waiting for us, and we are oh, ready con- to deliver. Oh, Congresswoman, women can just push the babies out on the front in the front of their trucks. That's how they do it. That's how the real women do it. Congresswoman Pramila Jha, just push it out and keep driving. Maybe hit the brake a, a little bit eventually. Uh, Pramila, Congresswoman Pramila Jha, Paul, thank you. Thank you very much. And don't go anywhere. Woo! Tonight's Absolute Worst is up next as the CDC's approval of the COVID vaccine for kids opens the door to yet another wave of harmful disinformation. Of course. We'll be right back. We've seen time and again the reach of disinformation and lies about COVID and the vaccine. This week, a Newsmax reporter was taken off the air and suspended from Twitter for vaccine conspiracy nonsense. And it was revealed that newly COVID positive Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers reportedly wanted homeopathic treatment from his doctor to count as vaccination, which the NFL rejected. And then Rodgers misled the public, saying he was immunized. Now, the fight over vaccine misinformation moves on to children. As kids ages 5 to 11 are rolling up their little sleeves, NBC News reports that doctors, public health experts, and disinformation researchers are already anticipating a flood of anti-vax propaganda featuring younger children. Now, vaccine hesitancy is already prevalent among parents, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll. A third aren't ready yet, and 30% say their children definitely will not get the vaccine. Now, it is totally understandable that parents would have questions about their kids' health, which is why the White House is encouraging parents to reach out to their own family doctors and pediatricians if they have them and to step away from social media where kids are just as vulnerable to fake information designed to persuade and mislead them as their parents are. In fact, a British study last month found that anti-vaccine conspiracy theories on TikTok could reach kids within minutes of signing up, some as young as nine. Although, for once, Facebook or Meta or whatever is trying to get ahead of it, rolling out stricter policies for disinformation targeting kids. And again, if you have questions, talk to your doctor. But don't listen to just any old body who has doctor in their title. Cue former HUD secretary, the once revered Dr. Ben Carson. This is really sort of a giant experiment. Do we want to put our children at risk? Why would we do a thing like that? It makes no sense whatsoever. 
to believe he was a pediatric neurosurgeon. Remember gifted hands? Actually, it does kind of make sense, given that he also went ballistic against Obamacare and became a Trumper. But sowing the seeds of doubt is just another example of the onslaught of anti-vaccine propaganda barreling toward our families and toward our health. Be safe out there. That's tonight's readout. I mean, that's tonight's absolute worst. And that's also tonight's readout. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.